0: Welcome to the first ever uh, episode of the uh, View from Down Underer. Uh, I'm Alex Tan, Professor of Political Science uh, at the University of Canterbury. And uh, we have uh, Professor Nick Koo from the University of Otago. And my colleagues here at the University of Canterbury, uh, Orson Tan, June Krisa-Spia, and Neil Van Vary. So this is our first attempt at doing a uh, podcast. Uh, we thought that it will be a nice idea just to uh, talk about the events, uh, global affairs and regional affairs particularly, from the perspective of us that are down under here. Uh, And we bring in our perspectives also of being Southeast Asianists uh, from the region, uh, born of the region, raised up in the region, uh, having uh, probably an inside-outside view of the situation. Well, as you know, uh, this week has been quite uh, momentous uh, with regards to President Biden's trip and the NATO meeting up in Vilnius in uh, Lithuania. Uh, CNN does report did report that uh, Biden almost got everything he wanted. So, one of the issue that uh, was talked about a lot is this issue of NATO membership and of Ukraine. Uh, as everyone know, the war has been going on since uh, 20, February 2022. Uh, and it's still going on. So this discussion about NATO and whether Ukraine should be a member of it, and uh, I'd like to bring in Nick here uh, for the conversation. Uh, well, you you take it over and tell us uh, what do you think has happened there. I mean, the fact that NATO said we're we're going to support you a lot, but the membership is still not there.
1: Yeah, and uh, well, welcome for. <laughs> For inviting me to participate, and I'm glad to be on board, uh, first and foremost. Um, And in respect to the substantive question, I mean, I'd say that, you know, NATO has a tricky balancing act to kind of try and negotiate. And I think it's basically got it right. I mean, you know, this idea of offering the prospect of NATO membership uh, to Ukraine in many respects, you restrains Ukraine uh, from perhaps uh, taking action that would escalate the situation, because that is the key thing, at least in the short run. NATO doesn't want to escalate this war into some type of wider war at the same time. So there that, that is that imperative working. Then there's an uh, opposite imperative of, frankly, just upholding Ukraine's sovereignty. So, you know, two, two imperatives at work. Uh, that has to be balanced. So I think the membership in the future idea does kind of reconcile this in a way that's politically acceptable uh, for all parties. Now, of course, we can't expect Ukraine to be totally happy with the situation because the fact of the matter is there is a third imperative here, which is that Ukraine's interests, while they align, broadly speaking, with NATO's interests, are not completely the same thing. So this is introducing a degree of complexity into the situation. I mean, if... Any country that's been invaded by Russia will certainly want uh, NATO's guarantee. Yeah. Uh, and so we can't expect that not to happen. But at the same time, NATO has to take a broader perspective and ensure that this doesn't escalate into a wider regional conflict.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and one of the worries is, is that I've uh, read in a report uh, talking about the fact that if Ukraine gets immediate membership, then it immediately draws in NATO into a
2: wider conflict. Uh, so that is indeed correct I was thinking the same thing because like if you think about what calculations are going on at the moment you have actually three intersecting parties you've got NATO you've got Russia and Ukraine at the same time and you've got to balance the what knowledges or what actions Russia might take in response to whatever actions that NATO takes and Ukraine takes it's one thing for Ukraine to apply for membership and say we, we seek your protection it's another thing for NATO in response to this crisis, to say we're gonna subsume Ukraine into our, our alliance because then just just plays to the narrative mm-hmm. that Russia has been pushing, yeah, about this whole eastward expansion of NATO and the aggressive nature nature of uh, NATO as well.
0: Yeah, what do you see? You know, where do you guys see it though? I mean, as far as if you're talking about future timeline, when can that membership happen? You know, I mean, it's a bit tricky, right? I mean, so. Do does does Ukraine go become a full uh, a member after you know this conflict is over? Uh, and then I've uh, also read somewhere where in one of the reasons that the uh, uh, Pentagon or some military experts were saying that uh, Ukraine this uh, was not uh, in, uh, there's a delay in the admission is because that they still need to move up uh, to the standards of NATO. But I think that's more. Uh, probably not the primary reason. I think the primary reason is really more strategic uh, and also political as well.
2: Yeah, I think it's more of a political calculation. I think in terms of, if you think about how soon after the whole conflict ends that Ukraine can join, I would say the moment the conflict ends, they would start the process of membership. Because thinking about how the conflict has evolved and has played out so far, when the conflict does come to an, its eventual end, there would already be an acknowledgement that the next step that Ukraine takes will be to protect its sovereignty, to defend its national security, that a similar conflict would not happen again. So that political political calculation for Ukraine would be immediately I'm going to start applying and the surrounding countries would kind of understand that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's quite likely. Yeah, I think if I could just make a... More historical comment um, to provide uh, additional context. I mean, the the reality is that in 2008, in June, the NATO Bucharest summit, there was this promise or carrot carrot dangled in front of uh, Ukraine that opened the door for potential membership. Now, the critique of that view was that basically it was not specific enough and therefore it allowed for Russia to kind of get involved and see this whole chain of events leading up to the current conflict. And so there's a case to be made for a relatively well-defined position on NATO on this, uh, moving away from an ambiguous, open-ended commitment of some kind that doesn't really um, bring Ukraine uh, along in a way that actually contributes to stability. So I suppose a broader point that emerges from this comment then would be that how NATO handles this issue is is really a test of NATO's role in the 21st century. Mm. And it's, unfortunately, uh, events have escalated to the point where it's brought this on to the front burner. But at the same time, you know, there has to be a reaction to Russian policy in respect to Ukraine. You, you cannot have a situation where... Russia launches a a war right in Central Europe that really just brings the entire focus of the world and this into a major international security issue for the 21st century. I mean, and we'll talk a little bit about this on the implications for the Indo-Pacific, but it's got the point now where this has become a a defining moment, defining incident in in international relations of the early 21st century.
2: Yeah, Nick, I think it's interesting that you've talked about this, this being a, a, a kind of watershed moment for what is NATO's role in the 21st century. Because what, what we've kind of seen is that with this whole Ukraine conflict and the role that NATO is playing in supporting Ukraine, we've seen NATO kind of evolve into being a political entity on its own that's kind of separate yeah. from the sovereign states that make up the members as well. And everyone now, yeah. the the mainstream narrative or the the discussions going on about NATO is NATO acting out as a individual actor in this in this scenario.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes. I think that's that's really quite interesting. You know, when you think of the evolution of the organization itself, right? I mean, for a while uh, uh, after the Cold War, you know, people were talking about whether NATO can, will be relevant and yeah. and and it was finding its feet, so to speak. Uh, you know, what does. Uh, what does NATO do when uh, when it was originally established as a counterweight uh, uh, to the Warsaw Pact, so to speak? Uh, but now it's uh, it's kind of coming on its own. Uh, it's uh, in a way organizational relearning, yeah. uh, if you will, and uh, continue uh, and trying to find its relevance in uh, in um, in this twenty-first century, so to speak. But you know, going back to the the question yeah. again, I mean, how do you guys see you know this whole playing out? Because you know obviously the war has been you know early on people were thinking that the war would have ended <laughs> a lot earlier but we're still in here uh it's now what uh 18 months into the war and 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 uh there's no way that ukraine will get membership in this situation yeah. it will have to wait until some kind of settlement before before something happens how do you guys see it play out
3: and there's there's, there's sure, this settlement. this
1: raises Go ahead, Nick. Sorry, All right. so so this raises the question of whether it's going to be a victory uh, or some type of at least in the in, in the medium run for any particular party, right? Uh, and what exactly constitutes victory? Um, so this is really how I think the discussion is going to move ahead. Um, obviously, the Russians are not never going to admit defeat. Uh, NATO under uh, Biden has made sure that this will never be a victory for Russia. Now, within this space, this victory rhetoric, uh, there are a lot of possible outcomes. uh, And and states can then define victory in any way they want. But it's going to come down to some type of settlement. And this is where um, a number of actors are going to play some role. The Chinese are going to play a role in respect to the Russians. And the Americans are obviously going to play a major role with their partners in, in Europe. And um, and again, uh, just to reaffirm this point, the way this issue is decided is going to have implications for both other regions, in particular Indo-Pacific, and also across time uh, over the 21st century and that, that evolution. And that obviously will then bring in this whole issue of China's relationship with, with NATO, which we will talk about yeah. uh, later on and the, yeah. the nature of the relationship.
3: That's right, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with Nick here that any sort of victory, however they define it, will more likely be something fearic given how they turn out in the absence of a decisive advantage. And then barring any kind of crazy use of tactical nuclear weapons on Russia's part this time, yeah. it's going to be a negotiated settlement in the end, which means that we're looking at something that may be at the tail end of a midterm time frame but also yes. it ultimately depends on what russia as well looks like at the end of this conflict. That's right. Would you see a strengthened or a weakened putin or would there be a putin at all yeah. in the end of all of this? And also the question of at the end of that who between the two NATO and Ukraine who of them would actually need the membership more? Yes, would Nate would would Ukraine yeah. be as important to NATO's calculus, depending on how Russia looks like at the end of the conflict, or it would be more from the Ukrainian side? You know yeah. that this has long been delayed, and maybe after two invasions, we really need to be in the NATO, and it therefore makes them more susceptible to whatever additional demands that NATO will have for the membership.
0: I think that's really quite interesting when you think of. Uh you know, there's lots of variables that uh, you guys are all uh, pointing out now you know it's uh there's the russia element there's the NATO element there's a the china element the u s you know uh and, and the ukrainian element how do you guys you know how do you guys see this uh uh you know Kissinger uh in an interview uh talked about the you know uh that after this war ukraine definitely has to be in otherwise you know you've armed this country with modern weaponry, and and it has
4: to be reined in by NATO somehow. How do you guys see that? Well, just on your point about the U.S., what's going on at the back of my mind as we're talking about all these variables and these actors is the fact that there's an election taking place in the U.S. next year. And we know that support for Ukraine is not exactly as bipartisan as we think. We, we've perhaps heard some That's rumblings true. from the Republicans in the U.S. about yeah. um, the role that the U.S. is playing in, in Ukraine. Yeah. And what I wonder is if that dynamic changes should... Uh, the result of the election turned out to be different from yeah. Biden's administration. Yeah. The second point, which is also going on at the back of my mind, as far as because you just mentioned Kissinger and America's role in it, is I think Biden was asked <laughs> about uh, Ukraine's potential membership of NATO, and his reply was, well, there is a lot more to be done and settled, such as democratization. Yeah. And to me, that sort of almost harked back to the Biden administration's sort of first foray into foreign policy, and the whole discussion about Democracy versus autocracy—that we're seeing. Yeah. So I wonder how much of how much those two variables will uh, come into play as far as a final settlement of any sort is yeah. concerned.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think not not enough attention is being given to the role that the Republican congressmen, sen- senators are playing in this whole Ukraine war. Was it just earlier this week that uh, Majority Taylor Green put forward a bill in Congress to? to demand that the president stop supporting Ukraine mm. because she says it's an unfair use of taxpayer money. And a lot of these Republicans are now basing their campaigns on, on how US support for, for Ukraine is actually quite a drain on their own resources, that kind of insular-looking, uh, isolationist uh, view of foreign policy that, that you saw coming out with the more right-wing conservative mm. Republicans.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, that's, that's an interesting point uh, that Neil brought up here. You know, that there's on the background, yeah. there is this uh, uh, election that is coming up in the United States next year, uh, which could also change the dynamics of how this all plays out. So I think, you know, in a way, uh, uh, for now, anyway, uh, from a foreign policy perspective, we can see that Biden uh, can claim some level of... Uh, some level of victory uh because he was able to get quite a bit uh, uh, done in this trip uh the question is is how long uh how long uh can uh, can this be realized so to speak uh, after the 2024 election and and see how this whole thing games played out so it's a really uh, very interesting uh, uh, event uh, for us uh, and certainly from from here sitting down under uh, uh, it's a very uh, important thing for us to remind ourselves that there's lots of things happening in the world and and uh, and uh, there's lots of variables that we need to consider, which gives us to our point now, here where we are. You know, uh, uh, in that uh, there are four leaders from the Asia-Pacific that was there uh, in the meeting. Uh, New Zealand's uh, Chris Hipkins, uh, Anthony Albanese, right? President uh, Yul, and then uh, Prime Minister Kishida, right? So what's the implication of that? And, and is it uh, that NATO is now going beyond North Atlantic to to have its own footprint here in the Asia Pacific? Uh, Nick, take it away.
1: Yeah, and I do think that this whole topic of NATO's potential greater involvement in the Indo-Pacific is is really worthy of examination and comment. Uh, first point to start off with is this whole, it raises the issue of the danger of premature predictions, uh, as was mentioned before. It would have been amazing to people commentating 20 years ago to even fathom this idea that not only would NATO go from strength to strength, as we've seen over the last year or two, but we're now even having a discussion about NATO having some sort of role in the security situation in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, it kind of cautions us to be a little more circumspect in uh, making premature predictions, which is, I think, it's important to keep in mind. Um, And then it kind of raises this whole issue of why are we even talking about this topic? Uh, And that, you know, we have to be prepared that moving forward, uh, we do have to talk about it. Uh, because it suggests that NATO does have some sort of role in the Indo-Pacific region. What exactly? We're not quite sure. I think we need to be honest about this, that it may, in fact, evolve in ways that we do not expect. And the big question for us on this whole issue of unexpectedness is what exactly China's role is going to be in the region? Because my sense is that NATO's role will respond to how China behaves in respect to the region and its foreign policy. And obviously there'll be other factors, but China is certainly the most important factor in in my mind. So yeah, yeah, for sure, um, for sure, you know,
0: you know, that's definitely and for sure. I mean, no, how China acts is, uh, is uh, yeah. as a systemic challenge, uh, so to speak, is something that uh, NATO yeah. has mentioned and, and bringing in the, you know, bringing the South Koreans, the Japanese, uh, uh, the New Zealanders, yeah. and Australia there is a is saying something, right? So as you say, though, uh, yes, the form of how it will engage uh, is uh, still a lot of question mark. How and then the other part is also how do people in Southeast Asia, how do people in in in, in South Asia see this expansion, so to speak, sure. of uh, of uh, NATO's uh, mission? Uh, in the yes. in the region uh, would be uh, still for us. There's not a lot of people are talking about it yet,
2: and maybe maybe yeah. we should. I think before we even talk about that, I think the 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 way we frame it as NATO's expansion into the Asia Pacific kind of points to a little blind spot. We kind of ignore the fact that the four Asia Pacific countries that are attending the NATO summit have agency themselves. And they want it, yeah. Like the news about NATO opening up uh, the proposed liaison office in Tokyo. Uh, it's it would pro- It will officially be the first official NATO post in Asia itself. But what we forget is Japan has has agency, and Japan wants to deepen its relationship with NATO because NATO is the world's largest military alliance, you know. And Japan has real immediate security issues or, or, or fears regarding the the situation in the Taiwan Strait regarding China's build up of its naval naval capabilities and in North, North Korea K- as well in North Korea as well yeah and that's why that's yeah. why NATO has the avenue to to enter the Asia Pacific because we not we in general but the four countries want want to be a part of them
0: yeah our colleague uh, you know in our recent uh 3rd Canterbury Conference on Mm Indo-Pacific Security, uh, our colleague, uh, Dr. Tomohiko Satake, did mention uh, a little bit about the Japanese calculation, which is really interesting because when you think of it, uh, there are, of course, there are convergence of strategic interests that are happening here, but Japan is also looking at at it from its own national security needs, uh, what's happening in China, what's happening in North Korea, what's happening in Russia, and also with an eye towards the... American electoral politics that is happening there as well. So, so in a way, Japan is saying that maybe they do need to take a little bit of more, uh, take a little bit more ownership uh, of their own security than just simply rely on, you know, just the United States uh, alone. Uh, and and that is a very strong draw, <laughs> certainly for for NATO to move into this area. I was wondering though. I mean, if you think of Southeast Asia, though, I mean, what what. In, within Southeast Asia, what's uh, the, what are the talk around the capitals uh, in this area? Um, anything in
3: Manila? Thinking about uh, NATO, for example, in Asia Pacific. Uh, not at the moment, because the overriding concern is 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 still really uh, the South China dispute. But yesterday, interestingly, Pulse Asia came up with this uh, survey about would Filipinos support more alliances to forward Philippine security interest and 80 percent of them said yes mm. that it doesn't matter who the alliances are who the alliance members are it's that the idea is that the Philippines should integrate itself more into these alliances to help kind of push back against China's aggression in in the South China Sea
0: mm, That's interesting,
3: but not not specifically NATO or, 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 or European alliance for that matter
0: well, in, in the case of India, India's already in the quad, but how do they
4: see this play out? I think that's, a, that's quite an interesting question because New Delhi, tech, New Delhi has always shown a bit of apprehension towards these formal alliances. The idea of strategic autonomy and multi-alignment, which was previously sometimes called non-alignment, is still very much um a key factor in new delhi's foreign policy calculus yes there's conversions in china and yes in that regard to a certain degree perhaps new delhi might welcome nato's presence but from new delhi's perspective as well they're already part of the quad they are already part of numerous mini and trilaterals and to a certain degree i think um what new delhi will be asking themselves is what does nato add to the table beyond china it to even consider getting some sort of an agreement. I think there, there will be a certain level of informal uh, collaboration, perhaps, as it does with those many laterals and with the Quad. Um, but I think for now, they're, they're going to sit tight and watch how this plays out and the extent to which NATO actually shows its teeth, uh, I suppose, in a way, in, in, in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, and it gets involved to the degree. Yeah,
3: yeah. Jun? Which, which reminds me of... Uh a video clip, and I'm thinking about New Zealand and all of this, is that there's in fact a video clip that came out yesterday of the Prime Minister heading out of the meeting and meeting Zelensky in the doorway, and the conversation was something to the effect of, for New Zealand, this is about Russia going against the values that New Zealand stands for, which to me, I think, reiterates again the the major position that New Zealand has taken in, in, in all of these conflicts, that there's a view that this is about conflict between liberal values and whatever else values that Russia or, or China, for that matter, yeah, Taking over
0: other countries, uh, 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 impugning other countries' national sovereignty is something that, uh, that New Zealand has always been uh, standing for. You know, NATO did say that uh, they did cite uh, two key, very key events here. The issue with regards to the Taiwan Strait and, of course, the South China Sea as an incentive to, as a as a way that they see themselves moving in, uh, uh, or expanding into the Asia Pacific. So, uh, do you do you guys see NATO having bases in this
2: region? I think it's difficult to see them have a foothold in ASEAN. Like we think of ASEAN, and we think of what. ASEAN's role was ASEAN's role was to ensure that we wouldn't have this sort of military alliance gaining a foothold in the region itself and the 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 vibe coming from like places like Singapore is like we understand that the four Asia Pacific countries want to integrate but we don't welcome necessarily welcome NATO actively seeking partnerships yeah so so it depends on on which way it is played out so it's very difficult to see like to foresee you know Indonesia Malaysia Singapore the the, the, the more archipelago sides of Southeast Asia agreeing to to, to allow you know bases formed there probably Philippines I'm not sure June, June will have more insight in that but Philippines would probably be their their, their best bet in terms of of getting some concessions in that sense.
0: I'm curious because, uh, you know, uh, I'll put something out here for us to, to chat about yeah. and just uh, in the interest of uh, discussion. Uh, you know, with NATO thinking about coming this way, is it an admission in a way uh, that uh, the United States is having a hard time bringing everybody on board in Asia so that they have to bring others from outside the region uh, to come over here? To, to be a well, to China. I
1: suppose yeah I, I suppose you, we'd have to look at this uh, in in the larger strategic context I mean fact of the matter is the indo-pacific region is going to be the most if it is not already the most economic dy- dynamic region in the world um, and certainly it has the major rising power which is China so you put those two things together the regional, Um, robust economic growth and the fact that China is the rising power in in the early 21st century, put them together. And, you know, it'd be a surprise if NATO was not interested in having some role in the region. That's not to say that immediately it's going to start, you know, having an extremely active role, but, uh, you know, it just has to have an interest and it can begin exploring some role But first and foremost, the bedrock of the system is the hub in the Indo Pacific, is the hub and spokes network, which has stood the test of time with a bit of hiccups here and there. But ultimately, this will be the first go to mechanism or instrument by which the states in the region will seek to maintain stability. And that's all fine and good. And long may it continue. And if the situation escalates to the point where further remedial action needs to be taken, then the United States can, in a very stage, cautious, prudent way, uh, together with its NATO allies, begin to look at the potential for greater involvement precisely to uphold stability in the Indo-Pacific region. And based on that kind of prudent approach, it's very hard to see how any state would disagree, other than a state that's seeking to revise the status quo.
0: Yeah, yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, uh, uh, I wrote a piece uh, in 2020, 2021 about uh, an expanded role for NATO in Asia Pacific by arguing that yes. uh, that you know we can see all these actions as part of uh, maintaining the global commons and and sustain. Uh, you know, protecting the global commons as such. Because if you think of uh, what NATO did with regards to the Somali pir- piracy mm-hmm. issues, they've already been involved uh, in the Indian Ocean to yep. begin with. And and it's not too far of a stretch for it to to cover that part when we're talking about the protection of the global commons, you know, all the, uh, the various uh, treasures, uh, so to speak, of the high seas. And you know, there, 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 there. I say that there's lots of trade going through Indian Ocean, South China Sea, and trillions and trillions of dollars. So protecting these global commons is uh, particularly important. And I see uh, f- for an organization that is transforming itself, right, to becoming uh, um, a maintainer, so to speak, yep. of a global common, a
2: protector of a global common, mm-hmm. in a way it makes sense. It does make sense. Orson? I, I think adding to that point and what Nick was saying well is that NATO is also made up of the European Union member states and other you know, that there, there is actually no European Union member state that has a military presence in the Indo-Pacific. If you think about it, I mean the UK has it with the five power defence agreement, but the UK left the, the EU. So this is also a kind of a way for the EU to make itself more military relevant in the region and and see to be seen as contributing. And become less sidelined because right now, when we when the region talks about the EU, we only talk about it in FTAs and in 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 trade, but other than that, it's kind of easy to ignore them. But they want to be a part of it. Yeah, I think this is where the where the economics and the
0: security yeah. meets, and and where the political economy of uh of uh, international development, international trade comes in. Right. I mean, uh, let's say right to this next and last topic, where uh, I am conscious that we're. Hitting, uh, there's lots to talk about, and it's really very been very interesting. This last topic, which is quite interesting, uh, as we know, Modi uh, did visit Washington Mm -hmm. D.C., and uh, there was this uh, very good bromance between uh, between Biden and 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 Modi. And all of a sudden, you know, the flavor of the month, uh, India. So, um, and then just uh, a few days ago, right, uh, this Taiwanese company Foxconn, really huge. uh, Apple manufacturer that uh, decided that it's going to withdraw uh, from its investment in uh, in India, a 19 billion dollar semiconductor plant. So, so is India a good bet for it to be the next
4: factory of the world? Well, I mean, people have been talking about this for quite some time, and particularly since COVID 19 and since reshoring and China plus one French shoring have become. Uh, more appealing concepts. India's been the focus on India has has increased in terms of this ne- in, in terms of the next factory of the world. In Foxconn's case, it was only last year, in twenty twenty two, that this announcement came out that they are going into a joint venture with an Indian conglomerate called Vedanta to invest in one of India's first chip manufacturing firms, to the tune of nineteen or twenty billion dollars, and then. Last week, as you said, they pulled out uh, of this particular investment. Uh, but since then, they've, they've come out and said that the other investments in India are going to stay for now uh, in other parts of the country. But I think this certainly is a reality check and raises a broader question of where does India stand in terms of its manufacturing sector? Because it's struggled to, to make its manufacturing sector relevant in the way that China has or before China, any of the East Asian states did. Um, And to a large degree, it certainly struggled to alter its domestic political economy uh, and clear those hurdles. Some people argue that, yes, it has made some progress in relation to um, eliminating a bit of red tape and bringing about those institutional reforms. But I think what the Foxconn episode tells us is that there are still concerns from the private sector particularly international companies as far as India is concerned. It may seem like a good bet and may have a competent industrial policy, but for the moment, it's more policy than industrial. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
0: Uh, And I think uh, the part where (laughs) India comes into play and attraction, particularly uh, from a security perspective, certainly is uh, uh, it brings in a very, very strong and important uh, power uh, to this particular arrangement in if we, dare I say, containing China, so to speak. But there are two parts to this, right? Uh, China's challenge uh, at the moment uh, is both economic and now increasingly security and military, right? So, so uh, for now, the attraction for India has been in the security side, like right? the Quad, quad and uh, other arrangement between India and Australia, Japan and India, US on a bilateral basis. But the key challenge still needs to be Address, which is the economic side, and and where the world finds a replacement to diversify away from China, is a big challenge. And uh, at the moment, India is struggling, uh, uh, and this is a kind of news. And I think uh, Neil, your research talks a lot to it about, you know, it's a domestic issue, right? It's a domestic coalition and all the different interests that are competing that makes it uh, very very difficult for India to. <laughs> have that kind of manufacturing, at least to date. I mean, we've been talking about India for the last 20, 30 years, right? When oh, we talk yes. talking about, oh, it's going to replace uh, oh, yes. China. It's going to replace yeah. China. And it seems like we're all still waiting.
4: We are. We are. And, and hmm. it's, I mean, in my research, I did conduct quite a few interviews with people in manufacturing in India. And a lot of the SME sector is still very much... Um, looking for more additional reform and help. But you're right. I think the only reason India managed to alter its political economy in the 1990s mm-hmm. was because there was an international crisis. You know, that crisis enabled it, I suppose, to a certain degree, to bring about those reforms that yeah. it needed. But from India's perspective as well, going back to your point of the intersection between economics and security, India is in a position now where, beyond the variable and the element of China, As far as India is concerned, to a certain degree, it sees itself as a pole, being in a multipolar order. Mm -hmm. But in order for it to be a pole and go from being a balancing power to a leading power, it needs a strong economy to support its hard power capabilities. Without the former, I think it's going to be a bit difficult for it to attain the latter. And from a purely domestic economic perspective, India is in a position now where it has to create hundreds of millions of jobs every year in the market to keep its young population employed. If you don't have a strong manufacturing sector, your options are very limited in that in, in, in that regard.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That's uh, uh, so let's uh, India has to watch that space again as well. Yep. Huh? I think the three the three topics we uh, talked about today NATO in the Asia Pacific Ukraine's membership to NATO and then betting on India it's all watch this space. So uh, guys, uh, thank you uh, for uh, a very wonderful uh, chat. Uh, this morning and uh, we'll keep this on and uh, we'll hopefully uh, uh, we'll have uh, you know uh, more interesting topics that we can chat about as well and thank you very much and have a good
4: day. Thank you thank you. Mm-hmm.